Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. 
this is awesome because we've we've never actually hung out before. No. Although I did once introduce myself to you at a Grammy event at that point, and which is strange is like in in 2010. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you got to go to like uh, there's a a Grammy event called um, uh, Friends and Family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. I used to be somebody's like plus one kind of thing. You Y'all know? were someone's plus one. Right? I was someone's plus one for many years. For many party. years, right? Yeah. And at the time, I, I, re- I think it was the first time I was able to go with my my wife, so for seven years ago. Mm. And and I was like, that's Claude Kelly. We He's on that song that we just got released. It was this band that was on Motown who got dropped that's quickly crazy. afterwards. And I, and I was like, I just, you know, it was just like, yo, man, congrats on everything. You know, whatever, and you're like, yeah, man, you too. And then that was that was basically it until now, <laughs> and and fast forward I, seven I, years. Yeah, fast forward seven years, and all the shit that happens. But I just think that's really interesting. I think somebody sent me the song and said, I can't remember if you had the hook or you had the verses mm. kind of thing. It was like, oh, we need like a hook or we need the verses on this thing. Uh, a guy named Dan Strong and uh, okay, and not- Jared Jared Sharf. Um, who plays I, guitar I know for SNL? I know, I, know, I know Dan Strong very well from New York. We used to write, used to write all, together all the time. Yeah, at a studio downtown. That makes sense now. Yeah, I, now, now it's all coming back to me. But it's just crazy. I mean, you can actually have cuts with people and and not even know who you write with. Sometimes in the in the modern songwriting world, where most of the time you can write all over the the, the world and not even be in the same city as somebody. It, it, and it, I think that makes me feel always a little awkward when someone's like, even right now, like, we have a song together and I feel like a song is such an intimate thing that you should... And someone's like, we slept together, but you don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, we did? Right. But I mean, it's the awesomeness of technology and also the kind of awkwardness of technology because you don't really know who you're collaborating with. And also, had I known it was someone this fucking awesome, then I would have, you know what I'm saying, pushed for more stuff. So, well, I'm glad it happened But I didn't know, you later. know, at the, at the time, it, you know... To be honest, most of my songs, if I look back at the songs from that I was writing at that point, mm. I don't. I think there's a reason why they weren't successful, and there wasn't the consistency, and there wasn't the discipline, and there wasn't the. Sort oh, that's, of like, that's every single song. That's a song I did yesterday. Like that's every single song I've ever done. Like in my mind, I'm like, this is the shit. Like the world this is going to change the world and sometimes like most of, most often you're wrong but every now and then you're right and that's the cool part about songwriting but I go back and listen to those songs now and you realize that like you're never as ready as you thought you were like there's some song from like eight years ago I'm like man they were bugging this song should have been a fucking number one like fuck everybody and then you listen back and you're like oh yeah that chorus yeah. sucks <laughs> right so yeah I, that, that's me like with songs I did last year so so let's let's go back to the beginning of of your story. So you're born. I was born. Okay. Thank God I was born. Yeah, that's the first step. That's the first. I passed the first step. Where in New York did you grow up? I grew up in Manhattan. So I think that automatically makes me some kind of alien weirdo to begin with. I didn't. I don't think I realized that that was a weird thing. Because if you're from New York, it's just it's it's massive. So you think that the whole world is that way, and it wasn't until I left to go to college i realized that actually being from new york city was pretty strange i guess to everyone else outside of new york city so i grew up in stuyvesant town which is downtown on the east side 14th street and first avenue and that's that was like my stomping ground like i it was it literally is the reason why i write the way i write now because 14th street is like a 14th street is where everything meets 
in my mind downtown New York City. So it's like my family was Jamaican and they came to America to do really for nursing. And there's all these Beth Israel Hospital at NYU are really close to 14th Street. So all, the whole medical community, which was largely immigrant, like New uh, West Indians and uh, a lot of nurses from the Philippines and a lot of nurses from England were all there. And then it's also that line where like above 14th Street kind of gets nicer and below 14th Street is the village. So it's like the cross, the cross of hip hop and punk rock and... Billy Joel and all that stuff in in one place. Yeah, I mean that that really was the epicenter of music growing up. Exactly. I like I my playground was St. Mark's Place and Astor Place and all the graffiti and the punk rock and I was wearing Doc Martens and I thought I was it was grunge era, MTV grunge era and so you're getting like all this brand new hip hop and brand new alternative rock and I was listening to They Might Be Giants and Stone Apple Pilots. At the same time, I was listening to like Biggie and Mary J. Blige. That's all. That's what 14th Street is. It's like, it's all of that. And there's, there's, I went to a private school that was on 12th Street. But when you came out of school, Washington Irving, which was the big public high school, was right there. So you'd come out and it'd be all this, just, it'd just be everybody. You went to a private school for music? A private school for my, for my education from pretty much from kindergarten all the way up through high school. Wow. Yeah. In, in New York, that's... Yeah. Is that like an application situation? Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. New York private school is like college. Yeah. So like, um, basically that was, my, that was my mom's focus. She was like, I mean, like you have to get a, a, like a designer education. So I, I went to the school called Grace Church School, which is right near Union Square. Did she have a really thick Jamaican accent? Yes. Well, my mom's accent is half... Partly Jamaican, and then she grew. Then she started nursing in England, so it's British and Jamaican what and American. What does that sound like? I can't Can do. I can't. Her? I can't do it. Like yeah. everyone, everyone. Every time I try, it doesn't work. I, although people say that my Jamaican accent comes out sometimes. I think it's in some of the ends of my phrases or when I'm angry. But all right. you might have to just piss me off and, I'll, <laughs> and it'll come out. But but mine comes out and get real Chicago. <laughs> Like if I get really, angry, if I get really angry, you're like, no, that's not. You just start laughing. Is that really? Uh, my my mom, she would say Ross. She calls me Ross. Ross. Yeah, I love, love to learn that. That's accents. a whole. That's Ross. a whole other conversation. Right, cool. But you, <laughs> you, um, yeah. But so, so I grew up yeah. in. I said a lot to say that I grew up in New York City. Sure. And, and were your parents into music? No, my family is really all medicine. They're all like nurses, doctors. No, but I mean, well. like, were oh, they into did, it? Yeah, like, did they play music around the house, or are they singing? Like, man, like, yeah. My, I grew up in a single parent, so I was just my mom, mm -hmm. and never really knew my dad, which I, wasn't really a bad thing because I never really met him, so I didn't really miss anything. But my was mom was he in New York? Was he? Did yeah, you know? I know that he was in New York, but I don't really know like the details of him and and the rest. So I, it's not like a sad story because I don't really, you can't really miss what you don't know. Right. So, but. But to make up for that, what I was saying, is my mom was super, super proactive in just making me aware of culture and arts and sports and everything. So lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and literally every single room in the house had a radio tuned to a different station. So there was, their house was just noise, but it was just amazing noise. So my, if I was by myself, I was playing what was on the radio. So it was Z100 or Hot 97 or... Whatever was just hot, which and is then, an interesting era too, because you would get Biggie, and then you would also get no Stone doubt. Type of pilots exactly. So it, it That's how I knew it. It wasn't all. unusual to have no. rock bands and hip hop back and, to back, yeah. and it was all fucking awesome, and you were just soaking it all up. 
And then I guess to everybody, to all parents, that sounds like just bullshit. They're like turn that noise down. That's just how that's just generational. But then my mother, you're not Jamaican if you don't know Bob Marley. Like, he's like Christ. So literally, that was like my early education was Bob Marley. That was always playing. Motown was always playing because my mom came to America in the late '60s when Motown was big, and so she actually saw almost every single person that we consider legendary now live at the Apollo Theater. Yeah, that's awesome. So she just had this personal connection to it. So she had all the records. She had Aretha, and she had Ike and Tina, and all, and the Supremes, and she drilled that. And then she'd have, then I had to go to church every Sunday. So, I, so it was hymns and church music every week. And then I, was, I, I started playing piano first. So I started playing piano when I was three, classical. So it's classical, reggae, church music, hip hop, R&B, pop, soft rock, probably in the kitchen. It would be like all the adult AC stuff that was like, you know, crossing over like Chicago and Billy Joel and Carole King and James Taylor. So I just sat there and soaked it all up. When did you figure out you could sing? I was singing. Apparently, I've been singing before I could talk. The first thing I ever, the first things that kind of came out of my mouth out of words was No Woman, No Cry by Bob Marley. Wow. Yeah, which is a pretty heavy song to sing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm singing like 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 serious cultural anthems as a baby, which is actually interesting because that's that's still what resonates with me now, but. I remember, I remember, as young as I can remember, people told me that I was singing that song. Yeah, that's So crazy. I was singing before I played piano, but I actually took piano seriously first. Right. Yeah. Did you go, you said you went to college? I went to Berkeley. Oh, okay. Did you yeah. go for a piano or did you go for singing? I got in did you go for... on piano. Yeah. Um, and then when I, I was classically trained, and Berkeley is a lot more of a contemporary jazz school, and so... I was used to reading, sight reading and reading just all the notes out. And I just had a complete panic attack my first semester of like having to read charts. And I know I didn't want to be a, p- a professional piano player in any way. So I was like, well, if I don't want to be a piano player, I should figure this out. So I literally switched to voice. And I had been singing all through high school. I've been singing all my life anyway. So it wasn't like I was singing for the first time. I was in choirs and com- competitions and stuff in New York. But I switched to voice my first semester. So really no one from... Berkeley on knows me as a piano player at all. But if you know anyone about no one, anyone who knew me when I was a kid knew me as a classical piano player. Wow. Yeah. How often do you play? Do you still play? Hardly ever. It's actually embarrassing because I think I might have I definitely lost my skill because I just didn't play I didn't play a lot. But also it's more like my tech, like more like a sight reading skill. I can't I suck at sight reading now. My fingers are a little bit just kind of stiff, I guess, when it comes but my my brain works classically. So the music that's constantly in my head is like scales and minuets and different like motifs and patterns of notes and, and, and melodies in classical music. When you were at Berkeley, were you in bands? Or were, yeah. you, were you doing solo stuff? I mean, what kind of singing were you doing? So even at, this is weird, even at Berkeley, I still, I, I sang. I sang in gospel choir. I was in like the smaller elite group called Overjoyed. I did, um... I, I performed at shows. I did all like the the stuff that I guess the singers at Berkeley would consider successful. There's this thing called Singer Showcase, which is very hard to get into. It's like a show every semester for the best singers. They audition, and it's like American Idol. Pretty serious. I did that twice, and I did all the cool stuff. But I still wasn't—I I wouldn't consider myself a singer first at Berkeley. I just literally did everything. Um, right. I was— I. 
I knew I wanted to be in the music business really, really badly. I'd always wanted to be in the business from like when I was like in grade school. I think even back then my yearbook, it said like I was going to probably end up working at La Face Records when I was like in seventh Crazy. grade. Yeah, which I still have that. It's weird. To, to have actually work with L.A. Reid in real life is weird. But I did everything. I was like I managed, I, I produced shows and I managed like I would mock manage my friends and get their demos together. And I, I sang, I did background work, I would arrange songs. I, I, did, I was just a jack of all trades because I figured that I would have to know a little bit of everything to get in the business. And I had no idea what career I would get into. I mean, that's what, in the intro when I was saying how it's redefining what a songwriter is. Yeah. You know, the one of the problems that happens now is that people tend to look at um, they they have this definition of a songwriter as being a guy who goes into a room or a woman who goes into a room, mm-hmm. writes a song, and then leaves. And they don't recognize how many aspects of business and finance and marketing and branding and all the facets that make this profession work. Um, so few, you know, the three hours to two days or whatever it takes to write your song is a part of it. And then the whole other process of being a salesperson, you sell air for a living and like understanding the job of a songwriter has very little to do with the writing part is is a joy. Like anytime that I know I have the day just to be my creative self is literally the best time ever because what like what you're, what you're saying is real fucking talk. Like the, the skill of selling your song, the skill, the skill of, of of being in a room with an artist. The yeah. sk- I mean, there's there's literally parts of the songwriting industry. I mean, we, there's all the obvious stuff we're complaining about, like our rights and our credits and how much we're getting paid, and those are all, those are the, the parts that keep us alive. But the parts that we that are, have, still haven't been taught and figured out, which is why a lot of us fuck up and fail, is those things. Like it's it's the business of songwriting that happens afterwards. Like figuring out when to put your ego on the back burner Even, mm-hmm. no matter how big you are if you're fucking Max Martin there's a, mo- there's a moment where like it's not about him anymore it's about making Britney or Justin Timberlake whoever sound their best and knowing that time knowing when to force and when to push back pull back knowing when to like knowing how to even just talk to very successful free mo- free-willed opinionated sometimes fucking crazy artists is a hard job. Totally. And it's, a, and it's a job that I think we're not allowed to complain about because, number one, I think people see songwriting as very fancy and, like, especially when you're good at it, when you're successful at it, it's almost like, well, you've worked with, like you said, like Whitney Houston, Britney Spears, so how that's luxurious, so you can't complain. And also, there's, like, a code of, a secret code where, like, songwriters especially are not allowed to give away the dirty secrets of... What of how it's especially songwriters? I don't know why we're we're like the priests. Like we're not well, allowed to say it's anything about how treacherous they are. And by they, I mean every fucking body. I mean treacherous. Um, sometimes the fans are. Sometimes the artists are. Sometimes the labels and the management are. Sometimes radio stations. Sometimes bloggers are treacherous to the creative process. Like demolish it. And we're kind of just have to like we've taken a holy a, a holy vow, and we can we can say nothing negative about. 
the art, how it gets treated. It's very scary because this process of what we're doing right now is a little bit of magicians telling how magic is done. Yeah. And the more people recognize that it's mathematical and it's an illusion and how you create uh, what is literally a sonic illusion. It's not like if you put on No Woman, No Cry right now, it still sounds like Bob Marley is in the room, but he's not here. That is an illusion. Just like watching television, they're not in the room. And people don't think of songwriting or recording music as being an illusion. And the minute you start talking about it being not magical, but being scientific, there becomes some pushback from a lot of people who don't want to admit that you know for some reason singers are truth tellers <laughs> so people assume that well then they have to have written their own songs yeah it has but to they be don't their entire idea yeah and even even if it's like their favorite artists in history never wrote a song you know they they just don't want to admit that it takes a village to make it happen, and they really don't want to admit that, you know... Kent, it's, it's funny you're saying that, because I was just debating this with uh, my business partner, Chuck Harmony, yesterday. We were just talking about this very thing. And for a long time, it's been this whole thing of, like, it's been a dirty secret that, a, that especially a singer or a singer-songwriter had a team doing stuff. And for a long time, I guess, as a songwriter, we suffered because we felt like we were just kept in the dark and... We weren't getting the attention or the love or the money or the awards we deserved. But now something the tides are turning and there's this thing now where like it's actually biting the artist in the ass now. Because number one, a lot of the songwriters, myself included, get tired of it. And if you can really sing you're talented, like Sia and other people, you can just do it yourself and often do it better. But even worse than that, I think that we give artists are getting a lot of catching a lot of flack for their failure now. And I think now that you realize that all eyes are on you, I think there's an eagerness to say, like, no, it's not just me. It's a team of people. Right. So um, I, as a fan of music, like, uh, let, me, let me put it in perspective. Let me give you an example. So uh, Mariah Carey puts an album out, and the world doesn't think it's her best album. That's happened before. It's not a surprise. But she's also legendary. But she's also been doing this for 20-plus years. And so to some extent, it's actually not fair to her, the artist, to to literally pan her as a complete thing because you now see her as responsible for her look, her image, the marketing, the song, the video, the timing, the everything. It's like the live TV the whole the, the whole thing. <laughs> right. I'm like, but she definitely is the forefront of this, but there's for Mariah Carey alone, there's a hundred people yeah. at any given time making the whole thing work. So I think it actually benefits now the more than ever to reveal the fact that they're like they are amazing fucking people like rock stars who are doing a lot of different things so that everyone can like actually breathe a little better because I see it that way I see it like where I do it sometimes where like you look at someone they don't do as an artist what you want them to do and you kind of throw all the blame on them like why the fuck they put that album out and why are they wearing that and like who who like why did they approve this video and what is this song and why are you even singing that and you realize that this one person can can be responsible for the entire for all of it rollout and and so on the flip side i think it benefits everyone to be like here's this amazing songwriter i have and here's this this genius branding person and this video director and this choreographer and this stylist because it also makes the business grow but i think it cuts all of us some slack and for us just be fair now because why not i don't get it does does anybody if nobody takes the blame if no one takes the blame 
then the record labels just drop everyone and move on and the, and the money keeps flowing. That's, that's where they get off. But if no one takes the blame, then what happens is the art suffers. And I think that's what ha- is happening more often than not is that we just keep, we just keep it moving and without any regard to people's art or their career or th- the time put into it. Going back to when you were, um, you know, you're finishing up college and you're a singer, mm-hmm. did you want to be the artist then? No. You never, never wanted to be. I of nev- all the things that you were doing, Mm-mm. you didn't really want to be the artist. I am really hard on myself and I was never crazy about my voice, which is, I guess, strange to hear me say now because now I'm now that I am and I've, cho- I've chosen to be in a band and be an artist, that seems so opposite of what I believe now. But I knew I had a, a, a I know I I know I could sing and I know I could make the songs and the sounds I wanted to make, but I never felt like my voice was uh good enough into, against the people I compared myself to. So like But well, you're comparing yourself to Bob Marley. Fucking Bob Whitney. Marley and Whitney Houston and Billy Joel and Yeah. Which is silly, but also I've always had really, really high expectations for myself and always had really high expectations for music. So in my mind, if it wasn't giving me that feeling, then it wasn't good enough. And so if I couldn't hear that in my own stuff, then I wasn't going to put anything. I wasn't going to even go down that road. What That's about how much I respect a, artistry. As a writer, how, I mean, were you comparing yourself to those people as a writer? As a writer, I compared myself to songwriters. Uh, a lot of them. Like when were you starting to write? Were you writing? I didn't start throughout? writing until I was until after I graduated from Berkeley. Okay, so you were like, yeah, I could write this if. Well, I mean, how do you get start that? Late? Okay, so I was at Berkeley and, like I said, didn't know what I was going to do. And at the time, this is this is literally how life fucks your whole shit up. At the time, you can do you. Can, the music industry was kind of set up where you could do whatever you wanted. Like, there was just, money was flowing. It was 2000, whatever. And then while I was at Berkeley, 9-11 happened. Oh, right, yeah. And I'm from New York, and it happened in New York. And I don't think people talk about this enough, but it really did flip the music industry on its ass. Because music is still not a necessity. It's a pleasure for people. And so when people get scared, or money gets low, or they're hoarding for safety reasons the last thing you think about to do is to go out and buy music. So a lot of music tanked, but also the business and the entertainment business kind of froze. And so for us graduating the next year, those A&R jobs that, the, that you used to be able to get because you went to Berkeley and they had a relationship and you just go straight to Def Jam or go straight to Interscope, they weren't really there the way they used to be. And so I was like, well, now what the hell do I do? And the only lucky thing I had was that I was from New York. So while everyone else came to Boston to figure it out and had to figure out a whole other city, I just went home. Right. And New York was the music industry. So I just tagged along with my friends who were in studios, my musical friends who were just writing and recording while I was in college, younger and older than I was. And I would sit in the back of the room and, and like, as the songs were either good or I'd sucked, I would start, I'd start to have ideas. And I'm like, this is not, that's not what he should be saying there. It shouldn't, that note shouldn't go there. And I built the courage up to speak. And after a while, they're like, why don't you come do it? Or like, it just became like the thing where like they needed me in the room and I built my confidence up naturally after I graduated from, after I got my degree in music business, I went and, I went and got a whole other career as a songwriter. And that's partly because I don't think that we, we do a good job of saying songwriting is a real career before you fall into it. And also I think that I was, I didn't, I would have majored in songwriting at Berkeley had I known. 
and oh, probably would have. I probably would have, but had I had I done that, I probably would suck. I think I probably would have. Well, yeah, and and I the, the things I use are, are the things that I learned in like the uh, you know I just did have a music industry degree from from SC and yeah. the stuff I learned from you know the the intellectual property law classes yeah. are the things I use every day. Exactly the songwriting stuff I learned. From listening to your favorites and to, yeah, to, from yeah. listening to my favorites and eventually having them as mentors. Exactly, that's how I learned how to write songs. I, I, I mean, there was a songwriting class, but it was fine. It's, and music what changes. I learned was like really the intellectual property. Music changes, well. so you can't really like it's, you can't really textbook music because the way like okay, so if you were studying the way Diane Warren wrote ballads in ninety in ninety seven, then you'd be really behind right now. Not to say that they're not valuable and that I wish they weren't on the radio, but that's not necessarily how songs are being crafted now. So it's hard to study, get a degree in and say that I, that's this is my thing. Like, I think I just absorbed a lot of stuff at, Bar- at Berkeley. How are you paying bills in New York after graduating <laughs> and you're sitting in recording studios not contributing? Like, uh, oh, how does my somebody- <laughs> God. Listen, the amount of things... Okay, I, all right. So I lived at home uh-huh. for uh, a couple years, maybe like, Three or four, maybe. And your mom was totally supportive of like, yeah, yeah which is man, totally crazy and, and like awesome and rare. And I, and I know that's not like, yeah. that's not normal. So, um, I mean, she knew I was driven and she knew I was going to figure it out. I, I'm, I didn't, I wasn't really sure how, but I think she had a lot of faith in me. But I took a lot of odd jobs. So I worked, <laughs> I worked all over the city. But I, I was used to working because I, I had summer jobs and I worked when I was in, from probably 14. I got a, my work permit when I was 14 and I was, What's the worst job you did during those years after college? All right. Talk about six degrees of separation. Yeah, okay. I worked on 14th Street. Uh-huh. I worked at a glass engraving shop. Uh, so nice. it's really like it's literally a store where they carve the words into awards for like whatever. It could be like the annual doctor's convention, they're giving you an award, and I'm literally at this machine with this glass thing like filling it all in and then it types out like doctor of the year ross like whatever it is like that kind of stuff so and literally my job wasn't even to do that much it was really just to dust and windex all the glass examples <laughs> and the store was full of just glass example awards that were just collecting dust so i just spent all day windexing and um the weird thing is that i got a call i was just trying to write the time and i got a call to do some random trip to go to uh Holland to write with someone. This is me just around New York grinding. So somebody had just heard some of the songs you started I, yeah, I, doing. I, I don't remember how that happened. I had been I had been writing for people, and you know my name had gotten to one person to the next person, and someone ended up offering me an opportunity to, to come work on an artist demo overseas. And I told my boss at the job that I was gonna like need a couple more days or whatever, and I told him what for, and he was like, he basically was like, you know. Uh, you should probably focus more on working here because music doesn't really work out for people, and you know you can really climb here. And I think you're making a big mistake. And you, you should can take windex the, time the off. windows outside. You can windex the windows outside. You can windex the, the the car windows. There's so many things you can windex, exactly. not just awards. If you keep working, at I'm it. like, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go to Europe. I think. Right. So then, I quit the job, go to Europe, come back. Two or three years later, or maybe four years later, things are going good for me. I'm in LA. I'm working on Corbin Blue. Oh yeah, from from American Idol, right? Or no? From no. Glee. 
Ah, from Glee, right. Who's, by the way, an awesome guy. And this is like early on before I had anything massive out. So I was literally just getting better. And these people were taking chances on me, gratefully. Did you have a publishing deal? I didn't yet. I think I was... I ended up signing Warner Travel, but I didn't have my publishing deal yet. I was literally just getting around on my own. Did you have a manager? I did have a manager from New York. And they were, were they helping kind of spread the word? He was helping spread the word. I mean, we were literally just on foot, basically. Just It was word of mouth. I, 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 signed, I went from ASCAP to BMI, and BMI really believed in me, and they actually were, were really instrumental in kind of connecting a lot of the dots for me. Uh-huh. So I'm in this session. I ended up doing most of Corbin Blue's album at the time that it came out. Just, I was working really hard, and they let, we had a flow going, and it was great. Album comes out. It does what it does. It was, it was part of the whole Glee hoopla. I worked for him at the time. Get a call from him a year later, and he's like, so I'm at lunch, or I'm at dinner with my uncle. And I'm telling him about my album and how great it was, and I'm telling him that, uh, you know, I had this amazing songwriter named Claude Kelly, and his fucking uncle was the guy who owned the glass and flavoring store. No way. Yeah, so his uncle never heard from me again. And then when he heard from me again, it was by his super famous nephew, who I, I guess at the time he didn't even know was going to be so big, who was on this hit show, who was now getting his entire album written by me, who he told it would never work in music. What a great revenge story. That's awesome. I definitely had a relative at one point that said, you know, uh, after, you know your parents are still helping you out. When are you going to get a real job? And they definitely have posted on social media all, <laughs> right. all kinds of things. About I'm so proud he won be my Songwriter of the Year. Like, right. I, I mean, I, I, it's actually I try I try not to be bitter about that stuff because it's part of the course. Like, music is a crapshoot. Like, I yeah. know that, and for most people, they don't make it. So it actually is pretty common. Yeah, to and, say, and right. So for me to be In like, theory, well, they're fuck looking you. out for you. Exactly. Right. For me to be like, you couldn't see it is kind of true, but it's also kind of. Mm-hmm most people's story and it doesn't actually end with the, the way that ours ends so sure sure so you're in are you you're not living in la though when you're working no. on that record because you refuse to live in la i refuse to i, I was <laughs> i i was a, i am a true blue new yorker and my theory was if i could take my new york mentality which is basically puffy can't stop won't stop like all times of the day and night and i could apply that other places i would beat my competition so I learned to write really fast. I learned to write really well really fast. And I learned to, de- I, I learned to demo my own stuff. So the reason that I actually became, I think, a good singer was because I would sing everything. Because it would take too long to get someone else to sing it the way I heard it in my head. And I know I had enough voice to do it. So there's every, almost every demo, male or female, bar maybe one or two, um, that went to artists was me singing them. So I would get to L.A. and I would just, I would go to one session for three, four hours and write a song and get that placed and then go to another session for three, four hours and cut it and get it placed. And I'd do three, song, three sessions a day. I'd go from Dr. Luke to Akon to Chuck Harmony and then back to the hotel, get a couple hours of sleep and do it all again and do that every day for a week and then go back to New York and get some rest. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's crazy. Yeah. So you go, uh, when, when is all this happening? I mean, you, you, like you were saying, you were in Holland and then three or four late, if, years right. later, you know. Timeline. I, okay, so I graduated in 2002, uh-huh. 2002, and I didn't get my, I, I didn't get any kind of the break that people know me for, which is like Britney and Kelly Clarkson was 2007. Right. So, uh, I was in New York just figuring it all out with no publishing deal, hardly any money. And I was literally at my last, like I signed a publishing deal because I had to, I, I, my original, my original plan was never to sign one was I wanted to purposely be like the rogue ghost writer that no one could. You wanted to be Diane Warren. I wanted to fucking be Diane Warren. Yeah. I wanted to be like, they could not figure where I was, when, whether I was coming or going. And I ended up signing to Warner Chapel for not a huge, glamorous deal. I had nothing out, so there was no reason for them to give me a lot of money. Right. But there's something about, this is weird. This is one of my first big lessons I learned in the music business. Like I just got to chill. That's weird, because I haven't thought about this for a while. Um, there's something about, you working really, really, really hard for something and like doing everything you can, spending all your money and trying it and you're still hitting a wall. And there's this, I believe there's this part right before success happens where you have to literally relinquish. You purposely have to relinquish some control. It's almost like letting the universe know that you trust it enough for something big to happen. Um, And the publishing deal was much less business for me and much more spiritual and not like in a Christian or Jewish or any other kind of way. It was much, much more like me trusting something bigger than myself that it was going to happen. I had done everything I possibly could. I had been very mindful of my relationships. I'm genuinely a nice, friendly person. I enjoy being in a studio and collaborating. So I never have like negative, I I rarely have beef with people or, or, or tense studio sessions. I had been writing, I thought at the time better than I ever, ever was. And I'd, I just kept hitting a wall. And then I was like, at the time, this is, how I, this is how I really started getting to L.A. I was like, I have no money left. And I just knew it deep down. It's like, if I can just get to L.A., if I can just get there, I know something will happen. I just need someone. I just need some money. I just need someone to just push me a little bit. And the publishing deal was just a little edge I needed um, to crack the door. Because I signed my publishing deal in, let's say, I want to say it was August. And nothing about the publishing deal changed my circumstances except for the fact that I trusted. Everything that I had been doing even the weeks before that. So I signed the publishing deal and the Whitney Houston record that I had written maybe in July or June, I found out was going to be on Whitney Houston right after my publishing deal. And the Michael Jackson song I did, I got placed like in September. And then Britney, I went to L.A., and the first thing Dr. Luke and I did was circus for Britney Spears. How did Luke hear about you? 
So on my fir- on the trip to LA, and this is the part I don't really remember. I know it was someone who worked with Luke who reached out to my manager, but neither of them were there. They just arranged for us to meet. And Luke and I are, are similar in that we're really musical, but kind, like, and I think we come across as kind of a big personality, but I'm probably more shy than people realize. So putting the two of us in a room, actually putting two songwriters in a room usually is a little awkward because they're both kind of insulate, insulated and kind of a, a, a ball of ideas, but kind of afraid to say any of them at one time. So it took a second for us to warm up, and then I played him the Michael Jackson song, kind of because I wanted just to let him know right away that I could do pop music. Because my biggest obstacle to that point was that you walk in the room and people see a black guy and they automatically assume that you should be doing Usher at most. And so I was always, it was always my, my goal to, to defy the stereotype. So I didn't want him to see me and think that I was going to be his lane into the urban world. I wanted him to see me as a great songwriter that would write whatever he threw my way. So I played him that song on purpose to let him know that I had, it was my idea and I had done it with Akon, who I guess he might have perceived as urban, but I could write a song for the biggest pop star you know. Yeah. And he heard ever, it. Ever. Ever, kind of. Just stunning a little bit. And then, but he saw me for exactly what I was. He was like, you're just a fucking great writer. And so when he called me back, he was like, I want you to come back and work with me. And I said, sure. And I flew back to New York. And then about a couple weeks later, he's like, I want you to come back for Britney. And on the plane ride back to LA to work with Britney, was, I was sussing through ideas and circus came to my head. So you walked in with like a song, like a concept, and you're like, oh, I got an idea. Well, not just, the melody, not, not even lyrics. I just, this was right after the, Britney had the breakdown and the, and the shaved head and all that stuff. Which is kind of, a lot of times I, I tend to work with artists when they need like to overcome something. I don't know how that works out, but I prefer to work with artists when they have something, a point to get across or something important to say or to answer, an answer to the world. And so obviously everyone was waiting for what the hell she was going to say after, it was after the whole Gimme More album and the MTV, the tragic MTV performance and that whole thing. So she had to come hard. And so I was, I was scared shitless. <laughs> I was like, this is a lot of weight. I knew it was my chance to do something really awesome because no one calls people for Britney Spears very often. And uh, I knew he was calling me. It wasn't the label. So I knew that, and I know it wasn't Britney because she didn't know me. So I was like, I have to prove a lot of, to a lot of people that I'm worth it, starting with Luke and then just the whole nine yards. So and this is, you still felt like you had to prove something having had, at this point, songs out with Whitney. No, but none of them had come out yet. All oh, right. So actually, what happened was the Whitney and Michael song were actually done first. But the way, you know how yeah. it takes forever for songs to come out, and the way the politics worked out, Britney, Britney and Kelly came out before Michael. And then also, Michael passed away. That's a long story. I'll yeah. get back to that. But. Yeah. But I was on the flight and I kept thinking about her life and, and how to make sense of it. Um, and I was like, her life is fucking crazy. It's like a circus. And I just started thinking about the imagery of what that could be. And I knew that she was a dancer and that she made great videos. And I thought of the idea of like, I'm like the ringleader. I call because if you're the ringleader, like you got to get out there every fucking night. You got to open the show. All eyes on you. Whip in your hand. Whether you feel good or not. And I was like, what must it feel like to be the ringleader? You never get to know if they're like, they just have to, they have to get the whole show started. And I was like, that's Britney Spears. She's got to, she's got to set the circus off, whether she feels like it or not, whether 
the press is there or they like her this week or not. And I was like, that, that's a song. And then when I got to LA, Luke and Benny Blanco were there working on the music and it just sounded like exactly what I was thinking a circus would feel like. And so it came to, we, we tweaked it for a day or two because we're all perfectionists, but that's, that song is wild because to start, your, to start like the, the successful part of your songwriting career and then watch a song go all the way through the steps from demo to label hearing it to Britney coming to sing it to it being on the album to being the name of the album to it being the single to being the video with the elephants and the lions and the contortionist and then it's the tour and then it's the perfume and then it's the like and it all started on an airplane yeah that that it 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 still blows my mind yeah. that that an idea can do that much that yeah. can can go so far and it was actually the best thing 2007 was the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of those artists. Not because they're famous and I got well-known for it, but my goal, my dream was to work with Britney Spears and my dream was to work with Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston and people like Kelly Clarkson. And I thought it was going to take me 12, 15 years after my first hit to get there. So when it happened in the first, in the first year of the world knowing who I was, I had a panic attack because I was like, well, now... What do I dream about? <laughs> like, yeah. what do I do now? <laughs> like, and it's fleeting. I mean, even when you, you know, you you keep thinking of. I know when when you're aspiring, you just like all you want is you just want to pay your bills, and then you're like, oh well, there's a huge difference in the industry between not making money and making money because it's exactly. it's sink or swim, and then all of a sudden you have a song that that gets up to number one, and you can try to will it forward, but it's <laughs> it eventually it'll go down. It's literally watching. It, it, the the tragedy is it's not such a, a selfish thing, but the tragedy of watching your number one song goes down is actually equally as heartbreaking because you're like, oh no, the party's over, right. and you watch the party just kind of slowly die. I always felt like it was uh, cathartic because you'd you'd be on on a song's way up. You know, you're just like, come on, keep going, keep going. I know this has it. I believe this yeah. can go forward. Come on, looking at radio stations, be why? Why isn't Topeka playing this song more? <laughs> what's like, wrong with Cincinnati? What's wrong with Cincinnati? Why don't they hear this song? This song's huge. Look at all these other stations, and you're you're spending all this time trying to hope it goes up to the top, only mm-hmm. for it to once it finally goes down. I almost feel feel like there's this moment of like, well, that was the life. Yeah, that happened, true. and then I can go on to the next one that will cause another. Six months of anxiety, but 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 you had this panic attack. No, the, was it the like panic a attack. Real panic is, attack. Like, no, yeah, it was. It was. I, I need to stay inside. I mean, it wasn't that. It wasn't that physical, but I definitely had to sit myself down for, and 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 make some new goals. Because if Michael Jackson is your goal, and it's pretty much everyone's goal, who was who grew up studying pop, and he's singing your song. Like, literally the guy who I grew up listening to, his voice is on, and my backgrounds are on there, so it's me and him singing together. Did you meet him? I didn't meet him. He yeah. recorded it in Vegas. Yeah. It's kind of, it doesn't take make any less awesome. This no, absolutely and I was like, not. Holy and, crap. And I hope people recognize what you just said, though, that listen to any song that a songwriter has done mm. that's a, that sings at all, mm. and they're all over these records. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no question that you're singing background on those records and you hear them, you're just like, oh, yeah, there's... <laughs> you start recognizing the the literal voice of the songwriter in all their songs if you go through their discography. When I meet people and they hear me talk or they hear me sing, um, 
a lot, um, may, I hear a lot of, oh my God, you're the person going, uh-huh, in the, on, on circus. Because, so funny. Because my, they use my, the demo vocal that I did there. And in my mind, I'm just cool, use whatever. And, but they, like you said, they don't realize there's other people's tones and sounds that are part of this record. So, man, but I, mean, I mean, part of the, the, the uh, nervous breakdown was like, okay, now what do I do? If I've done, if I've reached what I thought was the pinnacle. So literally from that point on, my career has been full steam ahead of just fucking people's heads up. That's just, that's just what I... You're just like, like let's go as hard as we I'm can. Like, try to get as many hits. Try to get Not as even many as many hits. Let's, let's break through as many boxes as I can. Like, as soon as you... Because the, lab, the, the industry, the labels like to put you in a box. So as soon as I did Circus, I was a pop guy. Mm-hmm. And I can't do R&B anymore. <laughs> You're not allowed. So yeah, it's I was interesting like, you were saying that you had to go into, to Luke and be like, no, 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 I'm a pop guy. And then you're like, you become a, or not, not just, or was, you I, have the ability to do pop. And then, then that puts you in a box where you're like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I didn't want to walk into this I didn't want to only do pop. Uh, yeah, right, I wanted to right. say I could do this too. Yeah. So literally my discography, if you look at it, it's on purpose. It was like, as soon as I have a big one on this side, I'd go over and jump. And a lot of times I did against other people's. Advice. Advice. Um, especially like on either side. If you're doing, if you have a hit record here, like stay over here. So I would do Britney and Kelly, and then I did Fantasia and had a number one with her on the Arpen side, and she got a Grammy for it. And then I did uh, R. Kelly, and then I would do, you know, I'd, then I'd come back over and do Jesse J and Miley Cyrus, and then jump back over here and do Lil John and all kind of random stuff. I would just be all over on purpose. Then I'd go to London and do Ali Murs and something over there and then come back over so you could never quite peg me and you could never quite peg my race or what city i was from i was just writing bangers that i would that, that you would love and then realize i did afterwards and that's i've had a blast doing that was the whole it time. when you say people like who who are you envisioning is looking at claude kelly as like i think it's part of my own you know i think a lot of what this is my own, my own experience. I would guess that I think a lot of what makes most musicians work and create the way they do is is their inspiration, but also I think we're formulated by the doors that are slammed in your face on your way up. So a lot of the chip on your shoulder or the reason why you work with certain artists is probably the ones that inspired you and part of the ones that everyone tells you doesn't think you can do. I heard a lot of like... If you're a black, if you're a black writer, you gotta write R and B, and I got put in a lot of awkward sessions that really weren't the best for me because you guys are black, so there should, should, should be a hit here. Um, and sometimes I got put in really great sessions for that, and it haven't worked out. But more often than not, I felt like it wasn't so much that I couldn't write the song because more I usually wrote, I was able to make it work. It was just I was so offended by the fact that I was being pegged because of if I was from New York City or if I was black or if I was, or if it was R&B or hip hop, I was like, but I like Cindy Lauper. Like, I want to write, I want to write Phil Collins records. Like, what are you talking about? Like, put me in with a rock guy. And, and it was the few A&Rs and artists that took a chance on that that allowed me to prove that people, that those ghosts, that I think were probably in my head too, were wrong. Do you think of that as, as racism? Hell yeah. The music industry is racist. Like, like I, that's probably a bold thing to say especially for someone that's doing so well in it. But I, I'm doing well in spite of the fact that most people are not doing well because of race. Uh, genres are one box, 
but within the box of genres, there's race within <laughs> there's race within yeah. that, and there are opportunities given to black to white artists that are not given to black artists. There's money paid that's not paid across, and there's definitely just the consideration sometimes that's not given because of where you're from or or even what your discography says. I, I know that because I sit with other writers, black writers, and there's almost a sense of you're looking at two, almost like the analogy I see in my head is like two soldiers that were like the two lucky ones that made it through the fucking field of, of landmines. Of landmines. Yeah. And you're like, wow. So you figured out how to make it too, huh? Like you, you avoid all the bullshit and all the people telling you no and all the people telling you you're not good enough or that you can't do this stuff. Esther Dean is an example. Every time, every time I talk to her, and I don't see her very often, it feels like you're talking to someone that survived as opposed to like, she had a great opportunity and, and we're having a blast doing it here. Yeah, of course. It's a lot harder for... I mean, there's, there's a history of that they can go into for years and years about the business and fairness and black artists versus white artists. And there's, I'm not sure there's an answer to it either. But for songwriting specifically, I think that uh, there's a part of that that's beginning to shatter now. I think we're part of the generation that's shattering it. Sitting in Nashville right now is shattering it. Yeah, I mean, sitting I was in Nashville ask right about now. So is, we're, is, we're is obviously doing this interview in Nashville. Um, I mean, you're you're living in Nashville, n- not doing country music. I'm living in Nashville, not doing country music, and I, I always I always say that this is the blessing of technology. I have a, I have a lot of bones to pick with technology and, and what it's done to music. However, one of the awesome things is that it's played a big part in kind of wiping away some of those those invisible walls we put up because like we talk, like I said about where I grew up I think that New York City and 14th Street is kind of a microcosm of what I end up having to get used to in the business technology iPhones iPods I guess MTV too made it so that music wasn't regional mm-hmm. like our parents grew up listening listen to what they grew up listening to because that's what was playing in their neighborhood so if you if you grew up in, in a Irish American neighborhood, there were certain things that everyone listened to, or Jamaican neighborhood in New York, or you were from Atlanta. And, and for a long time, hip hop was based off of, it was regional hip hop. It's New York hip hop and Southern hip hop. And I think what it made, we all listen to music kind of schizophrenically now on purpose. So I'm halfway through a Lil Wayne song, and then he says something that makes me think that I want to listen to TLC. And TLC takes me to Taylor Swift, and that takes me to. Drake, which takes me to Miley Cyrus, which takes me to Def Leppard, which, you know, it's just, it's just a good... And so I think that has forced everyone to realize that everyone's listening to everything, so you can't possibly put people in a box based off of how they dress, where they're from, how they look. It's not possible anymore. And Nashville is kind of changing the most rapidly because the kids of even country stars or country execs that would have thought that way grew up listening to everything. Yeah, I mean, And so if they're going to be musicians, they're going to want... Yeah. They, they were influenced by Drake the same way they were influenced by Taylor Swift. And you can't, we can't help it. You can't help but be the product musically of all that you do or all that you don't take in. So because we're taking in so much. You, 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 you and I graduated. Be, you know I mean? we, we graduated, I think, pretty much the same year from college. Mm. So my assumption is we're the same age. Mm. And the... Um, I my my first record I was able to buy in a in a Virgin record store. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably the last 
album I bought in a store. I was happy that I just made the cutoff mm-hmm. to have an, to to be able to because that was the goal. Was I just wanted to open up, you know. I don't have a CD player now, and I had a song come out that was on a pretty big album a couple weeks ago, and mm. I made sure to at least go buy the album at yeah. a Target just so I could open up the cellophane, open up and see Hold my name it. in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to see, like, that's still, to me, that's still a very exciting thing. But the death of record stores meant that the death of aisles, which means the death of genres, and it starts to become the homogenizing of of sound and songs and so do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing i think it's a great thing i do t- i mean i, I do miss too. i miss the fact that like you know the idea of like the real rock band or the real you know i actually think i think what it did was it actually killed a lot of music that i was a fan of growing up mm-hmm. um but i also think you know the fact that you can listen to uh Bad and bougie, and then and then you know, let it go right, for right, right, right. and 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 that they're they're next to each other on on a chart. Well, I guess they're a couple years apart, but you can have multiple genres all on the same chart. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, I, I think that kids don't know the difference between you know they can get into a phase, but I don't know. This is I, this is a lot more. I mean, you can just soak in. So much more. I, I remember, you think it's a bad thing? No, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I, I think the access to music is an excellent thing. I think it's great. Um, I've definitely made use of it. Like, cause I'm a stu- I'm a studier, so I can spend too much time just listening to worlds and worlds of music and going down rabbit holes that make me late everywhere, <laughs> give me yeah. insomnia. But I don't think that the, 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 that the, op, the options are the problem. I think that, I mean, there are problems that technology has brought, but I think that the erasing of the, the, those the kind genres, of, the yeah, boxes. Th- I think that is a good thing. Uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking I mean, you wouldn't a, have, a lot of time You wouldn't have Taylor Swift featuring Kendrick Lamar in, in uh, 1985. No. Like that wouldn't even have come across. I mean, I guess you had... Aerosmith and and run DMC, but for the but most that was, part, that was that was newsworthy because it was groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking, it, it, it but it, that yeah. was super rare. Uh, and now you would have it's not a question that you would pick. We're gonna pick a um, a very white artist and a very black artist, and we'll put you know or a, or we'll have right now you have a really. Um, uh, Latin American artist with a really white artist yeah. that's number one and then you have the next one that's you know a, a European with the same white artist I mean maybe that's <laughs> the thir- maybe that's the through line but but you're getting the the idea of the that stuff I don't remember that happening I, I think when you'd have a duet you'd have you know for the most part it was the duet was within its within it, it, certain it was it was walls. very well calculated it was within certain walls it wasn't f- as free as it is now in terms of like you, you just get it done see my, i think the plus side is is all this is the collaboration it's it's opening the door to a lot more creativity without having to go through some of the i think terrible gatekeepers that were there before yeah my only issue, well, not my only, there's a few issues. I think that, I think that 
the music, I think we as musicians, I, we, we can play on the music business, but I think all of us, it's too late, but I think we sold our, our industry to another industry. So, like, when I watch the NBA, I'm always a little bit jealous when I watch, when I watch ESPN, I'm always jealous. Cause I just look at, like, how insulated they are as an industry, as, like, everything about is top-notch. You can't get in there unless you're the best. You pay a, a lot of money to go see it, to play the video games that's around it, to buy the paraphernalia that's around it. Like, it's the upkeep of the actual, the level of excellence is so high that we all still gather around every year to watch the NBA Finals or the Super Bowl or the World Series. Um, and we, have a, it's, we just have a very lackadaisical approach, musicians do, to the importance of just music, the care of music on a whole. It has nothing to do with the availability or who's in it. Or It's just after it's there, after we have the art, like how do we treat it? How do we treat our artists? How do we treat the, our whole, this business we call music? It's so shabby in terms of how, when you compare it to sports and you compare it to even, even musical theater, even, and the one I'm not speaking of, which is the one we sold it to, is technology, which I think was the most silly thing we did ever, which is that we are a business within a business. So technically we can't really do anything without computers anymore. There is no music business without computer, without the, mu- without the, without the computer industry. So if, if we decide in this room we're going to be a band, it's not impossible to do, but if you, we're all very, very good at what we do and, we, and we've done it to a certain level of success, so technically we deserve and know how to, to do this on a really high level. For us to do it at a high level today if we start a band means that you have to go, you have to subscribe. You have to give in to technology first, which means that before your music can, you have control over music, Apple has to have a say in it. <laughs> Or Spotify has to say about when it can come out and at what level and where it, belong, where it decides to be in their tier of importance. And that's actually out, technically outside of... But that's of, still the distribution of the creative process. Like it, it, in a sense that you could go and you know, so few people get an opportunity to tour music before they record it for real. Yeah, and they they don't get to rehearse the 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 songs before they go in the studio. Now, like that, you're literally most of the time recording the song the day you're writing it, and, and, it right it, and it's literally recorded on the computer. That then you just put a, you bounce it down, and it's and it's ready for distribution on well, some well, level. That, that's why I say it's a catch that, me too. Is that like the opportunity, the availability is the blessing. I've like. Even even today, like this wouldn't have happened without social media and I mean and us actually having a conversation. That part of it, the inclusiveness, the community of music is beautiful. I think what happens out after, like what happens to our products, which is actually how we fuel. Yeah, it's really the, the, cheapened. It's because, cheapened. Yeah, yeah. And I wish that even to your point about buying a CD, um, we gave it up so fast. <laughs> We gave it up so fast. And I, I think about it now in retrospect. I'm like, okay, I'm from New York. I remember there being a massive Tower Records downtown, right? Which was my favorite place to go. I would see the artwork and I'd meet people in there and you watch people pick up things. And even that was a way for you to learn music. And if you think about the fact that if all the record labels or all the power players or all the people that had money in this all had a godfather-like meeting yeah. and said, like, what's the rent to keep the... LA, Miami, Chicago, and New York, one massive place open in their big cities. If it was 
10,000 a month or 50,000 a month. That's actually a small price to pay right. to actually be able to go and get. You know, even if there was a store where it wasn't selling the actual album, but you had an opportunity to listen to it in a communal environment or there was like that the music in, different albums. That the music industry tangible. said was communal. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. we can go listen to music everywhere now for sure. We can listen to it in Starbucks. But technically, when you go listen to music in Starbucks, you're buying into, the, into coffee. Right. Starbucks is profiting. And so when you go to Apple, you go to the Apple store to, to, buy, to ba- buy something to buy music, you have to buy a computer before you buy music. You have to have the phone. You have yeah. to do, you have to get, you have to pay me first before you get that. Mm-hmm. So technically, music is almost a hobby to everyone else's industry. And when there's no hub for us to go to, that's just our own stuff, which makes it hard for there to be a community outside of this online. You're, you were still, you know, all those records, when you're talking about Circus and, mm-hmm. and My Life Would Suck Without You and, and uh, Party in the USA, all these songs are starting to come out, though, while people are still buying CDs. Don't you think? Like, the, at least the tail end. The, the tail end. Like, tail I, end of it. I think I'm really grateful that I, ca- I got the tail end of the old business into the new business. So, like, I got to work with Clive Davis and watch him, like, do the old school A&R rollout for Whitney Houston and do, like, the... Like, that whole... That doesn't really happen that way anymore. And I watched CD sales still be a thing, and I watched even the Billboard charts. Like, I watched the old school... I watched records climb... Have to do the tough climb of, the, like, the Billboard chart was literally your hard copies and radio promo and stuff like that. And I watched it change and it start to include streaming and all that stuff. And, and I've kind of... I've I've succeeded on both sides, but it's interesting to be on the cusp of that change. I think it actually benefits me because I'm able to be flexible with artists, artists that are like 30 plus. I can I know I know how to talk to them and work with them and and and, and calm some of their fears. And I also know enough to work with artists that are 30 and under because I know what I know what it takes. And I know what Spotify looks like, and I know. Well, if you were, I mean, if you're four years older, mm. you go through your entire Berkeley experience recording to tape. Yeah. You know, yeah, and you you go through the your entire Berkeley experience without having email, no, nope. or or you'd have email, but not like where you'd actually be able to look up information online. When I was at class. Berkeley, uh, you know, it's like you're you're developing years. That's the cusp is our age. I think hundred percent. You know, you had a cell phone sometime in college, if not all of college, all of college. You know, illegal illegal downloading was the big thing when I was at yeah, like Napster and all that stuff. Freshman year, USC Freshman sued, year, I was sued like, Napster and when I was there, and it was like, wow, like my college is suing Napster, and our teachers are like, don't worry, people will support music, and you got to record a tape, digital's dead, and we'd go back to our rooms and use Reason. <laughs> And and go on on the Napster and like there was such a disconnect from our teachers. Do you remember to, the big? Do you remember the big fear? The big fear was like because there was like maybe one or two cases where it's that like if you were illegally downloading, like the FBI would basically come knock on your door and like you could get yeah. arrested for yeah. for stealing for stealing online music. So everyone was kind of like it was like watching porn. Like everyone's in there like don't tell anyone, but I'm about to steal us. I'm about to go down on this song. And you felt like you're always looking over your shoulder because you thought the FBI was watching you personally. Yeah. They weren't. That was college. They weren't watching us personally. No, I don't think so. They didn't give a shit. Um, uh, When you go through this run of not just number one songs, but like number one billboard songs, they're Mm -hmm. defining a number of artists. You know, you have the, you end up on, obviously, Grenade ends up blowing up. And to be honest, as successful as Bruno was, 
when you wrote Grenade, my guess is that was probably even maybe before Nothing on You, right? Yeah, it was before because all that came it out. came out all, pretty close. So, you know, it's not like you were just writing with established artists. You started working and with mm. unknown artists, and at the time, Bruno Mars was unknown. It just happened that I know him as a writer because he was a writer yeah. in LA for a while. So, yeah. I, I, I I I actually love writing with new artists a little bit more. Of course. Did you were you starting to aim for that? I just never said no. Because uh-huh. like once you work with Brittany, then you get calls from all over, and so there's a natural natural like where you work with her peers. And right. I I was always scared of burning out that way, and I always knew that like you could be known for resuscitating a career, or you could be known for breaking a career. And breaking careers is is to me a lot more meaningful. So Bruno. Ali Murs, Jesse J, Tori Kelly, uh, and a few. I'm forgetting people now, but I, I, I worked with them specifically. Chrisette Michelle on the R&B side. I was like, let me work with people that I can, I can help develop their actual voice that the world will now remember forever. Because the thing about about my fear with Britney Spears, and it's, it's I have it today, <laughs> I have it today with Britney, and I have it with Kelly Clarkson, is that if you don't come in on the beginning, then technically your hit. It might, it's how I see it. Your hit is, is just another song to knock off. So, Because Britney Spears has a gazillion smash records. So if she just doesn't feel like doing circus for the next tour, right. she might not. She might, might not do it. And, I, I and always, also, like, to those songs that, like you were saying, they're resuscitating a career or, you know, breaking a career, the ones that land right in the middle of somebody's really successful career, yeah, it's just another. It's just another. It's just another song. I don't think anyone's looking at who the right. If we're talking about the songwriter career, I agree that for people to look up who the writers are, you have to be right in the beginning of their career. So, you're like, well, who's involved in that? Or obviously, like you're saying, they're resuscitating. Yeah, you get in the middle of of uh, of a uh, even Wh- even Whitney as cool as that is, it's still like it's Whitney Houston. What are you gonna do it's, that it's, competes with the twenty Whitney, number ones? She I, had I'm or whatever? I'm proud to have worked with Whitney Houston and have to written with Michael Jackson for the, all the obvious reasons. Legendary people, they're singing your song. Not many people get to say that that that, that happened. That's awesome, but the actual musical satisfaction of watching. Um, part of the in the USA to help define who Miley Cyrus is as an artist today or the fact that people know Jessie J and know her for a price tag and domino and stuff like that means more because it comes from a much much more original place I couldn't there's nothing to build from I know I knew Whitney Houston before I got in there with her so you can assume much from the songs she's done and the interviews you know of her and the trials and tribulations and then you can kind of guess like it's not hard to figure out what key to put Britney Spears in and what she's talking about, and you can kind of assume her where, where, where she's in her life. But if I say there's a brand new pop star coming here that you've never met before, but she's going to be big, help define that. When you, you nail that, it's just like it's money. You put a lot of time into Jesse J. You know, yeah, like, love Jesse. I feel like that was that became kind of known in the industry that you became, you know, her main collaborator. Really. I think so. I'll take it. <laughs> I thought so. I'm in my bubble, so I'm always... This was also the right when I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm just started at that point. This has to be 2011 or 12 or something like mm. that. And at the time, I'm just getting out of being in a band. So I was okay. learning who all the players are in the business. Got you. You Got know? You. I wasn't... I didn't... You know, you when you're just starting out, 
what's cool about this podcast is that you're starting to quickly learn who these people are. Mm-hmm. But when at the time there wasn't anything like that, so you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know, I guess, you know, who who do you look up to? Who's doing what? And you follow careers of songwriters. Yeah. And there was this moment where it felt like that was that just was a main focus for you, was Jesse J. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no, no, that no, no. I mean, strange I, perception. no, no, no. I, I, it's always, it's always like awesome. you put a lot of effort into I d- that. I absolutely did. I, it's always, I'm really just more intrigued by, by, I guess, what the outside opinion is because I'm, I really do have blinders on a lot of time. And I go from like, okay, I did that, and, and I'm already into the next thing. So it's kind of cool just to hear what, what, it, what it seemed like from the outside. But I, Jesse and I spent a lot of time together. Because she was important to the label when she got signed, everyone kind of knew she was special, and and they they uh she did a showcase in L.A. and myself and Luke and Max saw her. I knew that she was something. And then when we the first song we did with her, the first round we did "Party in the USA," and we all thought it was a hit. And so when the powers that be didn't think it was a hit. It was a little confusing because it was kind of like, well, you asked us to work with her and we thought she's amazing and then we turned around something that we think is amazing and now like, like you guys should be the most gung-ho about this. Like, this is, this is what you want is for an artist to come and us to figure it out and to be a defining record and for it to sound great and with great writers and producers. And so when it kind of fell by the wayside and kind of sat for a while, strangely, the intrigue about Jesse J didn't fade because I felt like they're bugging, like she's a star, like, and we all felt that way. And so when it actually came out on Miley, we kept some backgrounds from Jesse J on there because Jesse J, J, is, her voice is insane. And it kind of reinvigorated us to be like, now, now we have to really prove to them that. What did the label say when Party in the USA was so big? Well, it passed through a few. That labels. might be your biggest. I mean, I, it, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I guess you have kind of like two or three that are that are tied. But I consider five. that one. I, but that's so one, big. I, I no? love that one because for me, it's not so much about the number on the chart. It's about it's, it's cultural relevance. Right. Totally. And that's almost yeah. like like it, like July Fourth is around the corner, and I'm going to hear it yeah. a shitload of times, which is embarrassing. But it's also like holy shit! Like I have like a. You have a copyright. I have a, I have a copyright. That's an evergreen. And, and that, yeah. that, that makes it one of the biggest ones for me, whether it's the most money-making one or whatever. It, I love that feeling. That's, that's what I aim for. How did Jesse feel about it when it was big for Miley? Did she feel like that was supposed to be her record? I think we all felt like it was her record, but it was a long time before it came out because it, it didn't go to Miley first. It went to a bunch of labels. Everyone heard it. Everyone loved it and was afraid to commit to it. Jordan Sparks wanted it at one point. And what was dying to cut it, and and that didn't work out. To the point, I don't think people realize this, but part of the USA was not even meant to be what it was. It was literally a one-off for Miley Cyrus's clothing campaign through Hannah Montana. <laughs> it was like it was like a, it was a either a Target or a Walmart. It was a Walmart exclusive, so it wasn't like it had this big rollout. Like it was Miley Cyrus is back again. It was just like it kind of snuck in there, and as soon as it hit the internet. Everyone, like, at the time was, like, Perez Hilton. Everyone was like, have you heard this new Miley song? And then the demand for it pushed it up the iTunes chart. And then they had to kind of, like, eventually open it beyond Walmart to... It's funny. I just realized this, that my first single is a band that was coming out on Hollywood Records. Mm -hmm. Um, Where it wasn't a cut, but they, they were opening for Jonas Brothers. And in theory, I think this was supposed to be a pretty big push. For this band called Honor Society, mm-hmm. and uh, the song came out. 
and they were on tour. The whole the whole tour was called "Here Comes Trouble," which is the name of the song. Um, and then uh, "Party in the USA" came out, and the whole label was like, you know, basically anything that wasn't "Party in the USA" just take a back seat because everyone had to. It was like all hands on deck. Party in the USA, and it, yeah, and I actually don't know if I've ever seen that really for another song where the label and almost everyone around it was like unprepared to deal with like how fast that song was going was, where it, it, everyone was starting to push it. yeah that that song feels different than you know even even grenade still following like ma- three massive hits and but, but I, circus with, is with big. grenade, grenade was big. a little similar though because i wasn't aware like because i knew him as a writer so it's a part of me is not not that I didn't believe because I, I wouldn't have gone in with him had I not believed in him. But it's no different than like you say, hey, I'm doing my album and like you want to come write and I write something because I believe in you. But then to watch the world understand what we always kind of know in, in our closed in our closed studios was impressive because like, like you said, I did the song before and all that stuff came out. So crazy. And then you know, the, it's great I watched it on Twitter. We were like, holy crap, this song Grenade is amazing. And I'm like, whoa. Like, okay. And then you kind of go with it. I mean, the guy is, is doing or just did the Super Bowl twice, right? Twice, dude. You know, you you talk about you you talk about like the princes of the world, you know mm-hmm. that that went and did it once, or like you know Bruce Springsteen and did it with Beyonce and Coldplay. And like did it that's by how big Bruno is. Bruno's not like, he, and he's that good yeah, that amazing. that the Super Bowl instead of going with you know, the Rolling Stones or whoever to go and do it. They're going to Bruno twice in three years. In three years. Like, I, I could easily see, you know, the whole thing become that, oh, no, it's the Bruno Mars halftime show. <laughs> because like, every year res- you'd be like, oh, He has totally a residency at the, at, at, at the at halftime show. At the Super show. Bowl. That's awesome. It's crazy, right? It's doable, though, because he's that good. He's rock solid as a performer. Okay, so real quick, so you go from you know you've you've got all these cuts and then you kind of go uh, you kind of go and do it oh, seems shit. like other things oh, like you shit. go. But that's the real questions. I'm so ready. I need to know what happens basically there till now because cool. you, you go into another world. I'm smiling because it's the part that I'm excited about. Yeah. All, that, all that stuff is is I'm, all that's your past. I know this past. is a is a this this been a lot. No, it's awesome. But I need to know. What happens to Claude Kelly? So, uh, uh, three or four years ago, I was working my ass off, doing everything that we just spoke of, working way too hard. Like, like I said, three, four sessions a day. My head was spinning. I was writing good stuff. I, I would call it good stuff. I wouldn't call it great, and definitely not my best, but definitely good enough to where like I was get, still getting money and nothing to complain about. Totally depressed. In New York, um, and started. I was like, maybe this is it. Maybe I just, maybe like I've done this. I've gotten my hit records, and I've worked with a lot of great people. And this, I should just go do something else. And I started looking online to go get my master's degree in world religion, just to like, not because I was trying to be like a priest or anything like that, but I just felt like this is a good excuse to travel, <laughs> and a good basis by which to travel and learn things and meet people and maybe be inspired to just do whatever's next in life. And I was sitting in my studio in New York, and my buddy Chuck Harmony, who was, we had the, sh- the same manager at the time, I started telling him this. And he's like, that's funny, because I was getting ready to go to the seminary. And I, so I looked at him, I was like, are you fucking crazy? Like, you're one of my favorite producers, you can't do that. Like, 
you gotta you, like you gotta do more stuff. And he's like, you sound crazy because you're about to go to fucking grad school and stop writing. So that literally, literally that day, that conversation led into like the reason why, and the reason why became all these things that we were annoyed with in the business, the places we had been burned, the songs that we had been disappointed by, the the, the sales that weren't good enough, all the shit that just kind of weighs us all down. And what it came down to in the end was that we, I felt uninspired by the boxes that actual songwriting had become for me. Got to be three minutes and 30 seconds. It's got to be whatever the BPM. It's got to be in this key and have this EDM break and this all that stuff. And it becomes formula. And if you're a real creative person, that's a that's a prison. That's that's just as bad as being broke and not having any placements and and being told that you're black and you can't do pop music. It's the same, you put yourself in the same box with a few more zeros in the bank. Um, so we're like, well, let's just go in the studio right now and not worry about the time or the, the tempo or the key and do what we want to hear. And so we did this song. And when it was done, it literally felt spirit, like spiritual again. It was like, whoa. It was potent. It was the best song I'd written in years. The energy in the room was crazy. And literally that day, a new me started. And so that was when I decided to be an artist. <laughs> it wasn't because I wanted to and I had this master plan and I was waiting for the right moment. I literally got dragged into a kicking and screaming. And then when I thought it was just going to be artistry, we, we said, okay, well, every time we have a free, t- a free moment in between doing the stuff that we hate, we'll get in here on a Sunday and just do this. And 16 Sundays later, we had this body of work. And halfway through that, we're like, well, I guess we're a band, so I guess we should have a name. I'm like, well, where are you from? He's like, East St. Louis, and I'm from New York. And so we're like, we'll call ourselves Lewis York. Just literally the, the mashup of all of our influences, Miles Davis for him and Ray Charles and Bob Marley and Sting and Phil Collins and TLC and Biggie Smalls and just Sade, all this stuff. And every, every day we get in there and have this conversation about what was missing. And the, the job was to fill in the gaps. So there already is a Beyonce. There already is an Usher. Like, how come no one's talked about Rod Stewart in years? How come, like, there's this thing where, like, you study Michael Jackson so hard and Madonna so hard and Mariah Carey and those, those kind of, like, pillars that you realize that you're neglecting all this fucking amazing music that is not that. Like, no one's trying to sound like Cyndi Lauper or Annie Lennox or Tracy Chapman, or Sade, or Sting, or until he passed away, George Michael. Or, I mean, literally all these, all these sounds that are the soundtrack of my life that are much more than just thriller and like a prayer and these things that we all try to chase. And it opened up the world of sound for me. And then it became a philosophy. And it, we're like, well, how are we going to make this work? It feels like a business. It feels like this is, this is what I want to... This is what I want all my art to sound like, and I want it to be profitable and commercial, but have a meaning. And I want to work with people that believe that. And so in, in all those conversations, the whole thing developed. We started a company called Weirdo Workshop, which is literally just, first, it started off housing Lewis York, and then we wanted to be like, we wanted to be a home for not only just artists that we signed, but just a home for our friends. Whether, whether it's the artists that we work with through labels or our musician, musician friends to get it right, just to get it right and to think outside the box. Um, so it's kind of modeled after Muscle Shoals. We're not a record label. We're not really, we're not like, 
your hardcore record label were putting out records and chasing, trying to compete with Def Jam. We're a creative hub. That, and we set up shop in Nashville because we didn't want to be in New York or L.A. New York is kind of dying creatively, which is sad. And L.A. is too crowded. And Nashville has a, a full respect of music, but it's growing and getting more diverse. So we didn't even, we didn't even set up a music role. We set up in Franklin. So it's outside. It's like 20 minutes outside of Nashville. And we literally have a workshop. It's all our offices. There's like 10 people who work there. There's an amazing studio upstairs. And we're at the, we're, we're where I love to be. We're at that stage right before it all breaks again. So I'm doing the best music I've ever done. And I don't say that. Everyone says, like, this is my, this is, this is my most meaningful work. Like, this is, this is my best. It's not, it's not that kind of a thing. It's, it's more, it's not for me to say if it's my, it's my most popular work, but it's definitely the work I'm most proud of. And also it's the most potent. So it's much less about knowing me because I did that one song that Miley brought to number one. It's about like getting artists to come and figure out who they are and give them a, a much more directed sound and get paid and get the credit for all the work that I'm that I, I was kind of already doing that. But now it's I, I have a reason and a purpose behind it. And I know where I'm going with it. So I'm writing the songs. I'm writing more now than I did probably than I did before. And it's taking me longer. But I'm doing it with a lot more focus than just being used for my three minutes and 30 seconds and then praying for the best afterwards. And I guinea pig Lewis York a lot of times because I think a lot of times I get frustrated waiting. And so we do it ourselves. And I think that as a male artist, not trying to compete with Chris Brown or trying to compete with, with Bieber, there's a whole part of male artistry that's missing, uh, especially as a black male artist. Is if you're not Usher or Chris Brown or, or The Weeknd or Drake now, there's, there's, there's no other tones. There's no, there's, there's no Marvin Gaye's. There's no R. Kelly's. There's none of that stuff. There's just, it's literally just a one-dimensional sound that we're trying to defy. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm super-duper happy, which I you probably hopefully hear from my voice. I'm, not, I'm, I'm excited about music again, and I'm excited about shifting culture again, which is what I think I did the last time by accident, and this time I'm doing it with a little bit more purpose. And I'm learning now because it's changing that it doesn't have to so much be a, a number one on the, on the charts for it to be culturally relevant. Like, I'm, my, my aim is in different places. So I love, I love pop records, and I will always do that. But isn't, this sound, may sound cheesy, but isn't, uh, isn't I Love You, You Love Me by Barney as big a hit record as... Yeah, right. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, isn't uh, a Sesame Street song or every single fucking Disney song we know or whatever, the theme song... F- like, we know the theme song of Game of Thrones now, just as well as we know. So it's, just, it's trying to apply my creativity and break outside the box again in places where people won't suspect I'll be. And for me, Excited. it's artistry, but also outside of artistry, it's having more of a say as a creative Are you going to end up having to team up with? With, like, a bigger? Yeah. We had, we've had offers. We, we do, like, we, we have independent distribu- distribution through Sony Red, which is now Orchard, I guess. Um, but, and that was on purpose because we wanted to maintain some of the creative control. Because a lot of this is just not being bound by even quarters and semesters and the Christmas break and all the kind of stuff that I think doesn't really matter. Right. People want their songs when they want them. So never say never, but I'm more interested in like finding cool partnerships per artist, per song, per project. And we literally have a studio, so the the, the draw now is... Come to Franklin for a week. 
and we'll get your sound, we'll get your single, we'll get your look, and we will also produce videos and everything. So it's all it's, it's a one stop shop. Which is what I, I watched the Muscle Shoals documentary one day, and it, and I, I've always been a fan of Hitsville, but I watched the Muscle Shoals documentary, and it, if everyone should watch it, especially in the music business, because I don't think people realize that it's a bunch of white guys in Alabama that were doing all their favorite Aretha Franklin songs. Yeah, but the idea was you send this potential legend to a place where they can get away from the noise of managers and ARs and the press and even social media and then you get respect and ain't no way and think and all those massive records and so we're getting them to come down here like uh we've, we've had a bunch of cool people that are just starting to come down here and anyone you can name or not yet well, across the board, we did, you know, the country artist named Cam, she yeah, recorded there. Maya, the R&B artist, yeah. has been there. A gospel artist, we just named Leandria Johnson, was there. Ro James was just in there. Um, I'm forgetting a bunch of people now. I hate when I do this. Uh, Deborah nope. Cox was in there. But a few it's years happening. Ago. It's happening. Yeah. And it's not, listen, I'm impatient. And I'm, like I told you at the beginning, I expect, like, excellence. So for me, it's not okay until... Yeah, you can be patient and urgent at the same exactly. time. Exactly. But if people are wondering where I am, it's not I didn't disappear. I'm a Capricorn and Cap- like Capricorns like to climb the mountain and then throw themselves off a cliff and then climb up the mountain again. So technically that's kind of what I did was like, okay, cool. Now that I, I can do that, let's see if we can do it a, a different route. Well, okay, so then last question is, do you have any personal life? No. Nice. <laughs> I'm not lie. But I mean, my personal life is. During all this, you're going through all this craziness. No, I was I was in a seven. I had an amazing girlfriend for seven years, and we're talking engagement, all that stuff. And I literally, that was part of one of the things that I lost as as part of this growing up. I, I call it growing up because I definitely feel like I'm a different. I feel like I'm a different person. I, I think differently. I definitely. I look differently. I I sing differently. I'm a lot more confident, but. I, there's, there's, I guess there's a regret because who wants to say goodbye to an awesome thing? Um, but this has become my life. Yeah. And not in a way where it's, not in a way where like, oh, you're a workaholic and you're doing it for the money and you got to find some time for yourself. It's all encompassing in, in, a, in an amazing way. Like we're a family. There's a, everyone there works together and respects each other. Um, I, I still hang out and have friends and, and do all the, all normal social stuff, but I would be lying if I, if I said that this wasn't my life. Like, totally. and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I don't regret that right now. This is, I'm, I'm on a mission to, to do something that's more than just, if I'm known for what I've done already, I'm, 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 I'm grateful, but I, I wouldn't say I would, I'm satisfied. So this is about me doing something that I think will be a bigger legacy for myself. The yeah. theme for everything we do is this thing called deep fried veggies. So it's the name of our, actually Lewis York's album. That's, that'll be next year, but the, the, that's the philosophy is that you give it to them fried, everyone wants it fried, but then when they bite down, they don't realize they're eating broccoli. So it's just doing art that is appealing that. to everybody, yeah. but it's also, it's not a flash in the pan, which is my, always my biggest fear that you'll be forgotten or that it won't last. Yeah. So just doing more smart work. We got to go to the last segment, which is going right. to be, I'm going to list five people, and you're going to just say the first thing that comes off the top of your head. <sighs> I'm going to get in trouble. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Uh, let's go with Dr. Luke. Tortured genius. Ah, I like that. Uh, let's go with Miley Cyrus. Rockstar. Let's go Jesse J. Silly. Silly. Oh, I, I love I, I, that. I think, I think people see her as like this intense singer, but she's silly. She's... 
when I think of Jessie J, I think of when you first saw her with the bangs and do it like a dude and price price tag. Like yeah. that's that's Jessie J to me. And that's that's to me like the heart of who she is. She's a fun loving, crazy, wild girl. I love that. Uh, let's go, Chuck Harmony. One word. Damn it. You can you can go uh, with two sh- words okay. if you need. Masterful. <laughs> Ahead of his time too. Yeah. Chuck Harmony, dude. I, I, I get asked the most, if I can be really candid, I get asked the most why Chuck Harmony because I work with a lot of people and he's worked with a lot of people too. So why partner, why decide to partner with him as opposed to anyone? Right. And again, I like to work with people that we can build something together. People have no idea. He plays every, he plays every instrument. And he can, he's literally, if there, is a, if there is something that reminds me of Quincy Jones and Capability... Like could do jazz, could do pop, could do rock, could do soundtracks. It's Chuck Harmony. I love that. Yeah, it's insane. You kept mentioning Ali Murs, and so I'm gonna go with the uh, the British Steves because you Steve work Steve Mack and Steve Robson. Yeah, two of the best producers yeah. in in the UK. And every time I'd go to the UK, it was always one week after you were there, or it'd be like <laughs> you were like a week after. It'd be like I apologize. No, no, it's so we good. Have our, we have to work out our calendar. So I know, right? But it was a, it was an interesting thing because I'd go out there and and it was always like they were always editing something you had just done, or it was like I was leaving and then I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, Klaus coming out next week. I was like, you know, I we we never we need to go we need to go out. together so we can yeah, just, we that just would knock make more it all sense. out. But all right, Steve Mack is meticulous. Absolutely meticulous. Um, Steve Robson is quirky. Yeah. Here's another thing. Steve Robson is in town right now. He is in Nashville right now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I saw him before. I went to New York for the while, but I saw him when he first got here. But he, but that, the thing about Steve is that he's he's. Another, I love working with him because people don't know all that he can do. He he's can really do anything. Anything. He's a massive Rascal Flats producer. Also ends up doing massive, you know. We did all the Ali Murs records. It's just yeah, totally just different stuff. Totally. I love going to London for that reason because the two Steves are like, that's just a whole trip by itself. Those two. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. You know, you, you you and I are are, you know, having gone through the same, being the same age, mm-hmm. and. Artistically speaking, you feel like you're in your you're about to release your the music you are most proud of, mm-hmm. regardless of the success of it. And I'm currently about to do the same thing. And having gone through a life of pursuing music in whatever capacity you can, mm-hmm. and to go and and like you said, you know, you climb these mountains. And those are beautiful mountains, but still the pursuit is, I still like the kid that was so broke that he might as well start writing a musical because no one would have them in the room. Mm -hmm. And that, that is my, the thing that I can now share and open a door for that because I can now. Yeah. Thank God. And somebody might want to listen to it. And when you're saying that you're going to Franklin to start this weirdo thing mm-hmm. and defying, you know, whatever boxes people put around you because you are finally doing music that you're like, you know what, this that's why you started this whole thing was mm-hmm. to do something that makes you smile. And to be honest, it's infectious. Everyone around you is going to smile and root for you because you're going to be smiling. Hopefully. That, that, you know? That's all it's about for me. 
is I, I literally feel like a kid again. I, I, I have more of those feelings when I'm like, that's how I felt when I heard so-and-so for the first time. That's all I'm chasing is that yeah. is, are those chills of, of when you when you like oh my god this this is a new thing this is music is amazing I feel that a lot more now I mean it's already successful man it's it's successful enough that like I see how happy it's making you mm-hmm. there's no way that you are going to beat you know it doesn't matter who cuts a record it doesn't matter how big it gets you, you're just happiest when you're happiest yeah that's true you know like nothing it. it, it You've already reached a level of success on, you know, the Lewis York stuff, the stuff that you're doing in Franklin, without ever even releasing the music. You're right. It's already successful. That's my lesson for the day. I'm Hell gra- yeah. I'm grateful already. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for doing this, and uh, let's get in an actual room together and write. Finally, man. <laughs> let's do this. All right, homie. Bye. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On next week's episode, we sit with Dan Wilson live on YouTube. Ross, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the three rules I had um, when I started Semisonic. I, I, I got the guys together. I got John and Jake together and the, like basically pitched them on the idea of we're going to be a band and we're all going to like pitch in together and we're going to like uh, make I guess hit songs but by our own lights and I told them here's here's what I would like to be our, our well it was our four rules really one was uh, we're going to split all the proceeds equally but I get the last word that was really helpful Two was um, life is more important than music. Uh, three was if we're having a bad time, we have to stop and go get a drink at the Loring Bar. And four was if a song isn't sounding good, we're going to throw it away and I'm going to write a new one. I just didn't want to slave over something anymore, like trying to make something sound better. Because what I found was if you write a great song, it just sounds good right away. So you might as well just like till it under and write a new song. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.